this compassion ministry Sunday, Sunday, you may be thinking, what is compassion ministry exactly? Well, let me tell you a story I heard of a, of a, a child named Katie, elementary school, goes to school, good student, honest, upright, you know, obedient to parents and everything. Her parents are surprised one day when, uh, when they get a bill from the school that says she's been charging school lunches every day of school. Now, the reason that was, that was weird is she left home every day with a very nicely packed lunch from her mom. And she didn't have permission to be charging any lunches at school. So mom calls her in and says, you know, what's going on? Why the charging of lunches? I lose my lunch every day, she says. I lose my lunch every day. I said, you lose your lunch every day. Yeah, I lose my lunch every day. I don't think that's true, she said. Are you being bullied? Is someone stealing your lunch? No, I lose my lunch every day. She stuck to her story. Mom said, okay, well, no more charging the lunches. Don't lose your lunch anymore. We'll just leave it at that. Times go, uh, time goes by. Next month, she gets the bill again. She's been charging the lunches every single day at school. Calls her in. Goes through the whole thing again. No, I just lose my lunch every day. Mom says, I don't believe you, but I don't know what to do. I'm just going to tell you, don't charge the lunches. Then let her go. Called up the teacher on the phone and said, you've got to help us. This is totally out of character for Katie. You just help us to find out what's going on. At first, teacher couldn't really figure it out at all. But then one day she's walking through the cafeteria and she sees Katie's lunch with her name written on it. And it's sitting in front of a boy, not Katie. And the boy begins to take out the food and to eat it. And so they call Katie and they go, okay, we know something's going on. Tell us what this is all about. Turns out the boy is a new kid in school, doesn't have any friends, doesn't have any connections. His family doesn't have enough money for him to have lunch, period, whether they pay for it or whether they send him with a lunch. She found out about it. The boy said, please do not tell anyone. I don't want to be embarrassed that my parents cannot afford to, uh, to provide me with lunch. That school offered free lunches for kids who needed it, but he wouldn't take it because of the embarrassment factor. He said, my parents won't even let me tell you that. So every day she would take her lunch and give it to him, and then she would go charge that to the account. And she was willing to suffer. She didn't think her parents would understand. And so she was willing to, to put up with the punishment, to sacrifice, to even be in trouble in order to meet the need of that other person. That's compassion ministry. Now, it's not the best way to go about it, but it is compassion ministry. For around here, we sort of make a distinction between what we call compassion ministry and care ministry. Care ministry is more what we're doing with those in our family that we know well, we have regular interactions with. Compassion ministry is more outreach to those we don't know well, uh, often. Now, there's overlap always between these two, but, but really our compassion ministry is more outward directed than inward directed. Uh, as we think about it. And compassion ministry has become something that's a big part of who we are and what we do as a church. We very highly value it. But why? Why do we value compassion ministry so much? Some would say, well, that's obvious because compassion ministry should be the absolute number one priority with the church. What the church should be doing at all times is reaching outward in compassion ministry. That is the absolute top priority of the Church of Jesus Christ. Well, that's not a totally bad answer, but it's also not totally accurate either because that's not the number one priority of the church. When you look at the mission of the church, it is to be Jesus Christ in the world. And as being Jesus Christ in the world, being his representatives, then to lead people into a personal relationship with Jesus, one in which they have their sins forgiven, 
ones in which they enter into a dynamic, powerful, lifelong relationship with God that turns into an eternal relationship with God. That's, that's the top priority. And so if we just say, well, compassion ministry is the absolute number one priority, we're not being uh, accurate. We're not being accurate in that. And that would cause some Christians to say, and some of them have said, I haven't heard it said here yet anyway, but, but some Christians would say, well, that just goes to show you the church shouldn't do compassion ministry because the church always gets too distracted from leading people to Jesus when they're doing compassion ministry. They think that just taking care of people is what God wants us to do and we just kind of stop there. It's way too distracting from our top priority. It's much too big to take, care, to take on. There's too many needs out there. It becomes overwhelming, so the best thing for the church to do would be to just ignore it. Don't do compassion ministry. But that's not really an option, is it? If you're a follower of Jesus, to turn our backs on people in need, that's not right. To ignore their needs while we talk to them about asking Jesus for forgiveness, hmm, that's not right. That's not going to work. We can't do that. Some would say, okay, okay, well, here's the solution. The church should be doing compassion ministry, but you know, that's really just for a, a certain number of people who have special gifts in that area anyway. So let's support those people who have the special gifts for compassion ministry. Turn them loose and, and we'll give them, you know, pats on the back and you know, other support that, that they need, that's what the church should be doing. But is that really true? Is it just for a, a few people? We're going to reconsider compassion ministry this morning by going back to a passage of Scripture we studied here a number of years ago, a passage in the Bible that gave us the perspective we need on compassion ministry. It was really behind our, uh, our initial launching of, uh, of a real effort for compassion ministry here. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10 beginning of verse 25. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up there today and follow along. I'm going to read the scripture out of the New American Standard Translation. If you have another modern translation, like the uh, New International Version or whatever, it'll be very close. But my text will be on the screen, so you can follow along there if you like. Luke chapter, 20, no, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we'll start. In Luke's uh, Gospel as well as the others, we read that, that Jesus very often, of course, would take time to teach and to uh, interact with people about God, about how to know God in a personal way, about how to live with him in a relationship, about how to, to be a true follower uh, of Jesus. He talked with people about all this. And sometimes when he did, questions would arise. Uh, sometimes good questions, sometimes not so good questions would come up. But Jesus would answer questions. In verse 25 here. Luke chapter 10, it says, And a lawyer, this is one day while he was teaching, interacting with people, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit? That means to obtain. We were here a couple of weeks ago, you know, that word inherit, obtaining eternal life from God. And he, Jesus, said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he, the lawyer, answered, and he quotes Old Testament here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. So do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he, the lawyer, said to Jesus, well, and, who, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two uh, denarii, those are coins, units of money, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This man with whom Jesus was speaking, here called a lawyer in this translation, was an expert in the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of God. That means he was the one who studied it and taught it and interpreted the law of God uh, for Israel. Uh, that's contained there in those, those books. That, the way he would do that primarily would be by teaching what, what the many rabbis and commentators who studied the law before him had said. They taught the traditions, as, as it was sometimes called. Now, the, problem, the common problem with doing that, with taking that approach to teaching the law in Jesus' day, was that the law itself often got buried with all the other commentators and interpretations and the studies that went on. The law itself often was lost as, as the teachers taught about, well, this rabbi said this or this commentator says that. And once the real meaning was lost, then, of course, people weren't really behaving and responding to, the, to God's law as they should have. The application of the law itself became overlooked while everyone was trying to live according to what somebody else said about the law. How deeply this affected this particular law expert, we don't really know. But we know that his motive in questioning Jesus that day was not exactly pure. You may have noticed uh, in verse 25, it tells us that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. He wanted to test uh, Jesus. Verse uh, 29 tells us that in, in the conversation with Jesus, one of the things he spoke, he, he spoke it to justify himself. In other words, he was, he was trying to, uh, to, to make a statement about himself, to show himself to be a certain kind of person as he talked with Jesus. So we get the picture here. He wasn't there just simply trying to learn from Jesus. He had some other agenda. Some other agenda. Now, at best, we could say he was probably checking out Jesus. Maybe he really wondered, hey, is this, does this guy really know his stuff? You know, maybe he started off with that uh, to see how much if Jesus really knew Scripture. We might cut him that slack and say, well, that, that was at least where he started. But, you know, it looks like his intentions really weren't, weren't very good from the beginning. He was, he was uh, perhaps one of those that Jesus came across pretty regularly who were trying to to either, on the one hand, uh, get him to say something that they could twist and then be able to, to discredit Jesus. It's very possible he was part of that group. Or, uh, or possibly um, he, was, he was really looking to, uh, to, to be one who would, in his testing of Jesus, be able to show himself superior to Jesus. Because remember, he was an expert in the law. And wouldn't he look good if somehow, in this public setting where people were questioning he could make himself look pretty good here if he kind of backed Jesus into a corner and then reasoned out of it himself and everybody would think he's good. We just don't really know, but, but we know this. He does ask a good question to start with. The, the good question he asks is, 
what, what do I do to obtain eternal life? How do I have a real relationship with God in which I'm absolutely assured that I know God personally, and when I die, I go to live with God forever? That, that's a good question. That was very legitimate. Jesus uh, gives an interesting answer. Do you remember what he said? Basically said, um, well, <laughs> you, you study the Bible, right? What's the Bible say? You're supposed to be an expert on the Bible. You tell me what the Bible says. Good answer on the part of Jesus. The law expert then quoted those two Old Testament verses uh, put together, one from Deuteronomy 6 and one from Leviticus 19. Verse 27 of Luke 10 is where we find it. The, the lawyer says back to him, well, if you're going to call me on the, what the Word of God says, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Pretty good answer, actually. Very, very good answer. Jesus, uh, on another occasion, had actually responded uh, when asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment? Jesus actually took these two commandments, said them back, and, and tied them together and said, just put these two together. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the most important commandment. And Jesus ties that together. So, so that was great. Jesus, by the way, uh, Mark chapter 12, when he said that, he said, there is no other commandment greater than these. Matthew tells us, uh, he also said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Everything else you see written in the, in the Bible, Jesus says, comes back to this. In terms of how you live your life, it's all just based on, on this. Loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. So, so Jesus gives a... Uh, 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 or this man gives a, a good response to Jesus when, when Jesus asks him, what does the word of God say? Uh, one of the things that Jesus did here as he did that was he was really addressing this man who loves, loves legalism. See, this, the lawyers, they loved the whole legal side. They loved the idea that, well, just tell me the rules. Let's just find the rules. The rules enable us to have a relationship with God. Just keep the rule. Just know the rules, know the regulations. That's kind of what they were all about. Do this, don't do that. What Jesus uh, was doing here with the lawyer, first of all, was, was really saying, you know, if you want to know the rule, you're a rule-oriented guy. So if, if you want to know the rule, then, okay, that's the rule. That's the rule. You know, Jesus, you know, went on and said, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. So if you want to know a rule, I'm telling you the rule. Just live by that. Now, as he was doing that, what Jesus was really hoping for as he spoke to this man was that he would realize, you know what? Nobody can do that perfectly. You're not going to get that relationship with God by trying to be a rules person. It's got to be something deeper than that. He was trying to wake the guy up to this. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We can't uh, fully do this continually. We can't be perfect in the rule-keeping. If we try, we're going to fail. We're going to be eternally condemned. If that's going to be the basis for the relationship with God, it's not going to work. On the other hand, Jesus was trying to turn him to, to the greater reality here, beyond legalism. About How do I really obtain eternal life? And, and by pointing the man to the Scripture, what he was really hoping he would get is, it's not about the set of rules. It's about where your heart is with God. It's about your attitude. It's about your approach to God. It's about whether you come to God humbly, not talking about how good a rule keeper you are, but humbly, submissively, 
uh, coming to God with a heart that's seeking forgiveness, with a heart that, that has a desire to live for God but can't quite pull it off within yourself, coming to God, uh, trusting Him entirely, trusting in His mercy and His love to forgive, and then pursuing to, to be like God with all your heart. Ultimately, Jesus, of course, would have hoped to get him to the place where he would begin to understand the, the death of Jesus himself. That Jesus was going to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to, to, to pay that penalty ourselves. We wouldn't have to be condemned by God. He wanted, uh, he wanted this man to, to understand that I'm the one sent from God to, to seal this deal, the deal that says I've paid the price and now if you will just believe in me and put your trust in me, if you'll ask for forgiveness from the Father through me, then I'll give it to you. If you come into that relationship, if you live your whole life for me with that attitude, then, then you will not be perfect, but you will be in a relationship with God as he accepts you and works on, a, on your life and pours his spirit in you to change you and make you more and more like him. So Jesus was moving the man that direction, but as we see, it made this guy uncomfortable. You see, his, his comfort area was, let's talk about the law. Let's talk about the rules. Let's debate what, I, what everybody else says about the rules. Let's bring out our best arguments for, for a nice conversation here. Now Jesus changes the whole thing around. He turns the tail. This, this is a whole new ball game now. And so this, this, uh, this lawyer becomes uncomfortable. He hadn't intended for the congregation, uh, for the congregation, the conversation to go that way. And so in his, in his discomfort, he also realizes this. Jesus is getting a little personal here, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh-oh, this is starting to have personal application to my life. And, and it was making him uncomfortable. And so he pulls out a great stock answer at that point. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> Who is my neighbor? You understand that that was widely debated among the rabbis? Exactly who is my neighbor that I need to love? Lots of discussion went on over that. And so much of it, that you know, you could argue around it for a long time and then you could get to the end and go, well, I guess we don't really know. We'll all just hold our opinions. And so let's move on to something else we could talk about. But Jesus wasn't going to let him off the hook here. But he's uncomfortable. And so he asked that question, who is my, my neighbor? And in response to that, Jesus tells the story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, we wonder, you know, was it a real story that Jesus applied? Did he make it up? doesn't matter. He told the story to make a point. And in the story, remember, as Jesus tells this, we we actually, if we look here closely, we'll see why compassion ministry is important, why we value it, and what we should do about it, each of us. First thing we want to notice here is we just think about this story. Here's what we learned right off the bat. Why compassion ministry? Why compassion ministry? To be who God created us to be. That's why we should do compassion ministry. Now, here I've I got to get a little warning. It's easy to think about this now and like, okay, Northwest Hills has a compassion ministry. That's good. Okay, well, let's personalize this. this is, just skip the, the, the church ministry for a minute. Each of us personally. Why would we do compassion ministry in our life? Number one, to be who God created us to be. Who did God create us to be? Well, he created us to be individuals who would glorify him. 
people who would live for him in such a way, loving him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, that that changed the way they lived their life. And in doing so, they would magnify, they would glorify God. They would make God real to people. By seeing God, uh, the image of God in, in our lives, seeing that image of God in our lives, they would, they would begin to notice God, think about God. And God would be glorified by the work that he's done in our life to enable us to, uh, to be like God in the way we live, compassionate and, and like God in so many other ways. We make his greatness known. That's, that's what we do when we live like, uh, like, like Jesus lived. And that's what God wants us to do. We were created to, uh, to reveal God in that way. And God, remember, he has many different attributes, but what we're focusing on here this morning is God is loving and God is very compassionate. He's loving toward those in need and he's very compassionate. Because he's compassionate then, he reaches out. He's proactive to reach out to others, just like he did in reaching out to us just, just right in the start. From the very beginning, when, when, hum, when the human race went astray, God came after the human race, started working through the nation of Israel, revealing himself through, the, through his works in the nation of Israel, bringing his word that his people could hang on to and learn from. And God just kept doing that, kept doing that. Finally, Jesus, the Son of God, came, died on the cross to save us. That was all of compassion. It's God loving us and reaching out to us. It's God... Uh, God uh, uh, Coming to save sinners, as it says in 1 Timothy 1, 5. Christ Jesus came into the world for what? To save sinners. Didn't have to, but he did. 1 John chapter 4 says what? In this is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't love God and God said, oh, how, how great. No, we didn't love God. But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And so we are to be like that God. We were created to be that. The story of the Good Samaritan, this man is, is traveling on a notoriously dangerous road, the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And along the way, he's robbed and severely beaten. And though it's not stated in the story, uh, he's clearly to be understood by what we learn later, the details. This is a, is a Jewish person, which would make sense. This is their homeland. This is a Jewish person who's been beaten and, uh, and, and, uh, and robbed. Uh, a, this is a, a brother of, 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 uh, of everyone else who's living in that area for the most part. But this man is attacked and he's left for dead by the side of the road. But what does Jesus say? Well, along comes a priest, a priest. Now, that would be one of the priests of the temple. The, the Old Testament worship was centered in Jerusalem at, at the temple. One of the priests who served there, who led the worship, who would have taught, been a teacher of the law also, who would have been an intercessor for people in prayer. That priest comes walking along. Probably he has, he has served a, a term in Jerusalem. Many of them came to serve in Jerusalem, then they'd go back home for a while. So probably he's just finished a, a term of service, leading worship, great worship at the temple in Jerusalem. He's on his way home or going on business somewhere, and he's traveling down this road, and he comes along, and there's a half-dead guy over there. And he walks on the other side of the road to stay as far away as he can, and he just walks by. He never stops to see how he's doing. And then Jesus said, after this, there came a Levite, now, a Levite was, a, was also a servant of the temple. A Levite was not a priest, but the Levite was one who was a helper to the priest. They took many important roles in the temple and in the worship services. They led in many different ways. And so here's another Levite. A Levite's coming along, and he walks up, and yeah, there's a dead guy almost. It looks dead. He might be alive, but he just walks by too. He doesn't even stop to see if the guy needs any help or not. He just keeps on moving 
Now think about this. This is, this is pretty wild. I mean, you just put it in our day. Like, suppose, suppose Paul and I are the last ones to leave here today. Sometimes that really is true, usually. We're one of the last ones to leave, and, and we're driving home. We both go the same direction. We go up, up Walnut there. And we've just led really great worship. We just had a wonderful time of fellowship with you all. We studied God's Word together and all this. And we're, all go, we're going home, and we see a guy laying in the road, in the gutter up there. And we both just drive by and kind of look and just keep on going. And we see him. We know somebody's hurt. And there's nobody else around, but we just keep on going. That's exactly what went on that day on that, that, that road. And you'd say, why? how could these people who love God, who lead worship, do that? How could the priest and the Levite do that? Sometimes it's said that they were uh, you know, afraid of, of touching a defiled body, you know, if it was a dead body. And the Old Testament law, the ceremonial rules, you know, if you'd been in contact with a dead body, you couldn't lead worship for a certain period of time, all these different things. Some people have said, well, that's the only explanation we can think of, you know, is that probably if they had a good reason, they couldn't do that. But, you know, don't buy into that or, or you can't buy into that because none of the circumstances really fit uh, for that in the first place. But, uh, but they're going away from Jerusalem, you know, and all this. And, and, but besides that, if you follow the teaching of Jesus, you know that Jesus was not so legalistic that, that anybody would have said, oh, I have a really good reason not to stop and help someone who's dying. And so we know this was wrong. So, so what, what was their problem? What, what was going on here? Why, why did, they, uh, did, they, uh, did they not do anything? We just don't really have the, the, the full picture to understand, but we can, we can say this probably. We just say, well, what would be our excuses? Our excuses would be this. You know, this is a really dangerous area. You just don't stop in neighborhoods like this. Or it might be this. That guy's so badly injured, I couldn't do anything for him anyway. He's probably going to be dead in a couple of minutes, so I'm not a doctor. Someone might say, you know what? If I get involved here, think about this. First of all, somebody could accuse me of being the robber. Or I could have a lawsuit filed against me for, you know, messing with somebody and maybe injuring them worse. Or, you know, the, the most common excuse, I just got too many things to do today. Somebody else is going to have to, to take care of this. All poor excuses, the law taught love. They weren't loving. Undoubtedly, both of them thought they were glorifying God with their life. You can imagine as they're going home from the temple... They're reflecting like how cool it was to be at the temple, to be leading these worship services. We were learning God's word. We were singing the worship songs. We were talking about ministry. Man, it's so good to be so close to God, to be in such a great relationship with God. And then they do this. And then they do this. And you know what that tells us? That tells us we need to be really careful about about our lives and how we interpret whether we're whether we're really living the life of a godly person or not. It's not all about the church. It's not all about the worship services. There's much more to it than that. It is that, but it's, it's much more. Jesus said it. what happened that day was then the third person who came along was a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Now, in our day, in our culture, you hear the word good Samaritan. You go, yay, that's always a good person. But you understand, you know, we, good Sam Hospital, right? Good Samaritan uh, Senior Center over near the university. Good Sam's all over the place. But in Jesus' day, in, G- in that time, in that place, what you have to remember is the word Samaritan to, to the Hebrews who lived there 
They didn't think anything good when they heard the word Samaritan. I will not go into the background, the deep history of how all this happened, but suffice it to say that as history ran through that that portion of of the world and all the things that happened to the Hebrew nation, uh, walking away from God, losing their land, coming back into the land once again, all the things that went on, battles fought there, the region of Samaria within the nation of Israel became a region populated by those who were of mixed blood, not full-blooded Jews, in many cases not Jewish at all. And they were peoples who, way back in their history, had gone astray from the worship of the one true God. They worshipped a mixture of of gods and a mixture of religions, and they didn't do the the worship the way God had specified it be worshipped in the Old Testament way. And, uh, and as time went by, those who were part of that group uh, became uh, enemies of the rest of the Hebrew people there. And, and it's not exaggerating at all to say that, he, that the Hebrews, the Jews, hated uh, the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. Just absolutely hated each other. So, so Jesus is telling this story, understand, and the good guys, the priest and the Levite, come by and they don't do a thing. But this rotten, dirty Samaritan comes down the road, and guess who stops? It's him. It's him. He stops there, and he helps out. He begins to help. So who's more like God that day? The godless man? (laughs) The godless man or the godly men? Who is actually more like Jesus? Who's more like God? God created us to be for compassion. Are we? Are we? Or do we fall into that same trap? When I was in a seminary, there was a guy I knew. We kind of were there a lot of years, you know, just kind of working our way through school. And uh, I had, didn't have a lot of classes with him that particular semester. Just saw him in the lounge one day, sat down next to him. We're talking. How's it going? You really want to know? Yeah. Terrible. He starts listing all the things going wrong in his life. We're out of money, lost my job. My wife just had a miscarriage, got family illness. It's just like on and on and on. He's laying out this, this list. Wow, just listening to this. Really sorry, I didn't have any idea. We're talking about it, you know, and trying to encourage him a little bit. And he goes, oh, I got to go. My ride's going. I carpool with this guy. Another guy that, that uh, goes to the seminary. He goes, I carpool with this guy. The L.A. area, you got to carpool on the freeways, right? And so he goes, I, I ride in this carpool. And... Uh, he goes, thanks for talking. I, you know, I, don't, I can't even tell anybody. He doesn't even know. He goes, wait a minute. You carpool with this guy to school every day, and he doesn't know what's going on? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, here's the way it worked. I needed a ride to school, and I, I had to ask somebody if I could ride with him. He told me that I could ride with him, but he said, here's the deal. I do my quiet time. The guy said, the driver says, I do my quiet time. I pray to God and stuff while we're driving to and from school. So the rule is you can ride with me, but we don't talk to each other the whole time. We never talk. And so here this guy had been, been driving for days and weeks with this, with this guy to school. And, and the guy beside him is hurting and just desperate in need of any help, even just a word of encouragement. And this guy doesn't even know what's going on. And, you know, and I thought about it that day, and I, I really felt not so much like I'm angry at that guy is, I hope I'm not becoming like that myself. Because I could see how easy it would be to fall into that trap of just minding my own business and staying focused and not having a compassionate heart. Not even taking the time to notice compassion around me. We were created to be 
compassionate. We were created to be like God in this respect. Second of all, we learn this from, the, from Jesus' teaching here. The reason we do compassion ministry is to serve who God calls us to serve. We need to serve who God calls us to serve because he does call us to serve some people. The law, the law expert asked the question of Jesus, who's my neighbor? So, so Jesus, who is my neighbor anyway? That's such a complex question, Jesus. Who is my neighbor actually? As mentioned earlier, you know, that was, that was controversial. Generally, those who lived at that time in that place where Jesus was, they would say, they would say, well, we know for sure, we can tell you for sure, a Jesus is, uh, or a neighbor is definitely a Jewish person. It's one of our fellow countrymen. It's one of our fellow Israelites. We can all agree on that, pretty much, they would say. Except some of them would say, well, you know, even there we have a little doubts, you know, whether you were born in the land or not. <laughs> you know, maybe you're truly Jewish, but you were born outside the land, so maybe you don't qualify. If this sounds ridiculous, it is, but that's how the, the, some of the discussions went. If you're a proselyte to Judaism, well, you might not be as much of a neighbor as if you were born here, if you, you know, if you, than if you, were, you know, started off from birth worshiping God or whether you converted later on. Some of that discussion was going on. Some of the groups that got in their little cliques said, well, you know, since we, we have the only true way, they would say, well, then only the people who are part of our little group are really you know, truly neighbors. It's interesting that one of the things that kind of came along that a lot of people agreed on was, that your enemy was definitely not your neighbor. Even if it lived next door to you, that's definitely not a neighbor, so you don't have to love your neighbor who's your enemy. So here's Jesus with this question, who's my neighbor? And, and so what does Jesus do? He asks the man, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Which do you, which do you think? Was it the priest, the Levite, or was it the Samaritan? And the law expert has no other choice but to say, well, of course, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. You see how Jesus turned the question around on him? The question Jesus was saying you should ask is not, who's my neighbor, but am I a loving neighbor? Am I a loving neighbor? The application of the command, love your neighbor is yourself, is not something that you should go researching. You should not spend your time researching that question about who's your neighbor. What you should be is a loving person. Over-focus on who is my neighbor is distracting you from being who God wants you to be and serving who God wants you to serve. That getting into the abstract thinking and theorizing on this subject is taking away from you doing exactly what God is calling you to do. Jesus was also, in asking the question this way, who is my neighbor, really saying and pointing out to this man, your neighbor, if you really want to know the answer to that question, your neighbor then is anyone with whom you come into contact. It's, it's anyone who is in your sphere, the life in which you live. If, if you see them, that's your neighbor. That's going to include people who are like you and people who are not like you. People who you know and people who you don't know. People who are likable and people who are unlikable. Friends and foes. Those near, those far away. Those in your neighborhood, those across town. 
You know, later on when Jesus gave the Great Commission and said, go make disciples of all the nations, he was even, by extension, we could say, we could look back and say, you know what, that would apply to anybody anywhere in the world as someone who's my neighbor that God wants me to love. All are those people that you're called to minister to. And since loving means acting in the best interests of others, then go and serve those people And don't ever use that excuse, it's not my responsibility. That one doesn't work. God calls us to serve. Not just our friends, not just a few, but everyone. Takes effort. One last thing that Jesus was trying to get across in this parable. Why compassion ministry? To give as God intends us to give to give as God intends us to give. He, he called us to be givers. The story here of the Good Samaritan, Samaritan stopped, he checks on the injured man, he tends to his wounds with some wine and oil, using that for antiseptic, using it for a salve, puts the man on his own donkey, walks beside the man as he carries him to the inn, takes the man into the inn, cares for him there, gives him food, clothing, shelter. Then when he had to leave, he pays the expenses for a few more days and Promises to, to, uh, to come back and pay whatever else is owed. So he gives his time, his energy, his possessions. That's what compassion is all about, actually doing something, not just theoretically saying, boy, I sure have a heart for that person. I'll, it, no, it's really doing something, putting out something. Jesus was pointing this out to emphasize this is the sort of giver God designed each of us to be. We were never intended to be hoarders of our stuff. But, but really, where, where we live in our nation, so much of our, our, our emphasis is on, on what? How much can I spend on myself? My money, that's my stuff to use on me. And, and, and some people say, well, I'm not a hoarder. I spend lots and lots of money. Yeah, you spend lots and lots of money. On who? On you, right? So you just traded your money for stuff or experiences or whatever. But it was all about you. What Jesus was really teaching here is that that does not cut it. it. It's not about you. And the things you have are not just to be spent on you. The, the type of person you're supposed to be is a giver. God designed you to do that. And to, to be a person who would not say this, how much do I have to give? You ever ask that question? How much do I have to give, you know, in the offering at church? How much do I have to give, you know, if I see someone in need? And God says, you know what, you're thinking totally wrong. You're not even, you shouldn't even be asking that question. The question you should be asking is, what resources do I have that I could use to help someone in need or to support God's ministry in some way? What are you more about in your personal life, giving or hoarding? God wants us to be those givers. We have to be careful also, you know, where we live because sometimes our giving comes to what? Lots of fundraisers? When we think about it, a lot of the fundraisers, they really ultimately just benefit us, right? I mean, it's not a bad thing to give to fundraisers, but it's a lot of times like, well, sure, I'll give $100 to this fundraiser. Of course, it helps my kids' school or sports team or whatever, right? And so we've got to be thinking like there's got to be something bigger than that. There's a bigger picture of reaching out and using our money to help those in need. That's why we do compassion. We were made to be givers freely, continually, compassionately. You can just write down these scripture references. I won't put them on the screen, but make sure you get the picture. Here's, here's the teaching. 
We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, it says in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Jesus, after washing the feet of his own disciples, said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have uh, you should do for others as I have done for you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God, therefore, as uh, dearly beloved, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 John 3:18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. John 13:17, after Jesus was done with the foot washing, now that you know these things, you're blessed if what? You think about them? No, if you do them, he said. In Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of the great benefits of compassion ministry is it brings people into a relationship with God as they begin to understand who God is and his love for them. So we're called a compassion ministry. How do we do it? Really simple. You know, it just breaks down to this because sometimes we go, I just, I'm overwhelmed myself. I don't even know what to do. Here, we'll break it down really simply and quickly. Number one, do what's obvious. Do what is obvious in your life. Meet the needs that are immediately before you, just right there. At this point, you don't even have to think about you know, joining a particular ministry. Just be a compassionate person who ministers with what's right there in front of you. You know the right things to do. Many years ago when I lived in Silicon Valley, we, we, uh, some pastors and I would, would meet. You know, We were all just guys getting together and, and uh, talking about church and stuff. And there was one guy who always came, and, and every time he came, we talked about, well, how can we pray for you? Well, just pray that, that our church would get the vision God has for what we're supposed to do in our community. Okay, well, he kept saying this over and over and over. Just pray for, for a vision of what God is calling us to do in our community. And he never could, could ever say, well, what, what's he calling you to do? What are you guys doing now? But we're not really doing anything. We're waiting for God to give us the vision of what he wants us to do. Man, just look around. You know, you know that you're supposed to be loving people. Start loving them in some way. And so do what is obvious in front of you. Don't wait like, well, I've got to have a sign from God. He's given you his word. Go and do it. Go and do it. I was in a, in a uh, fast food um, restaurant here in town a while back. And uh, it was a busy day. There's a long line at lunchtime. And so I'm standing in the long line. And the person, a few uh, people in front of me is at the counter. And she is a person who's uh, at least mildly mentally impaired. Um, and, and so she's there and she's, she's a regular at the restaurant and she's been able to come and to, to uh, be there and to, um, to know exactly what to order. She's learned what to order and how much money to pay for it. But since the last time she was there, they changed the prices on the food. And so she's at the counter, right? She's at the counter and, and she's befuddled. And the person behind the counter is, is, is a teenager who's probably new on the job. And she doesn't know what to do with this situation. She just keeps saying, I can't take the money because you don't have enough. And the person's just like, well, here. And she doesn't understand. And this is going on. There's this standoff. And there's this uncomfortable tension that's building in the restaurant as this is going on. And everything is just sort of stalling here while this is happening. And it just occurs to me, well, I got this dollar in my pocket. She was short one dollar. And so I just pull out the dollar and I just go, here, I just, I just lay it, stepped up past a few people. And, and it was like all the tension just dissolves in the room, you know. 
and everything goes back to normal. And it was like, how obvious was that? That it just took a little act to do something. But we overlook those moments when, when we can do something. So do what's obvious. Recently, my wife and I, you know, we, we had a neighbor who needed a, a, to borrow a car for a while. We kind of, you know, I was looking like I didn't want to give the answer right away because I need to go home and talk with Laurel. But as soon as we got away, we we're like, yeah, we got a car. Let's, let's give the car to, use, to be used for a while. That's compassion ministry. Start doing what is obvious. Make it a, a point of, of your life. Second, do what you're able to do. Do what you're able to do. Don't worry about starting a new ministry or movement. Just take an outward look and decide what action you can take. Don't worry about what you can't do. Just focus on the things you actually can do. That was Mother Teresa's uh, great focus was. She'd say, if you can't feed 100 people, we'll just feed one. Certainly you've got enough to feed somebody else. We'll just feed the one. That's good. Go and do it. My son John called me from college. We're just chatting about the day. Hey, what would you do for fun today? Well, my roommate and I, we went to the guitar store. We had to buy some stuff there, you know. My roommate's getting a new guitar, and he's doing this and that. And we were talking, and he goes, oh, something funny happened on the way there. We're driving along this car, like, stalled in front of us. It was a busy road, you know. This is L.A., right? This is a busy road. It's stalled in front of us. And he's telling me the story. He says, and we just, we just we pulled over on the side of the road. We decided we'll push the guy out of the road. And we pushed him out of the road, and then, then we found out he, he ran out of gas, and he didn't have any money. So he goes, we, we put some money together, and we just gave it to him and made sure he had some gas to get on his way. And, you know, my son, John, he has like almost zero money right now, right? And, and I'm thinking all these thoughts like, okay, L.A., traffic, getting run over by a car. And, you know, and I started to say, you know, John, you really need to be careful about, you know, go that whole lecture, you know, and there's frauds. You know, people are going to, you know, take your money. And, all. and I'm just thinking, like, I just thought, no. But because he's doing the right thing, isn't he? You know? It's like, this is what he can do. He had the money in his pocket, and it's like, Oh, he did it. And so, good job, John. Way to go. That's how we need to be. Here's, here's one thing with that. We say do what you're able. Remember, even the Samaritan had to leave. <laughs> he gets up the next morning and he goes, I got to go. What was it? Family business? His livelihood? I can't stay here in this inn. But I can leave a few bucks for the innkeeper to take care of this guy. Just do what you can. You, you don't always have to do everything. And then the last thing would be this. Make sure you do team ministry. Do team ministry. As much as possible, just combine with other people. There are times when you're on the spot, you're the one to do it. The best thing to do is just do it with other people. And one of the great ways to do it is do it with people at your own church. A great example of that, by the way, Acts chapter 6. Jerusalem church springs up. They're growing so fast. They can't keep up with everything there is to do in ministry. They're trying to feed the poor widows of the church. There's no organization. Conflict is happening. The apostles get together and they go, you know what? We've got to turn this into to something organized. And so they organize for the ministry and things start going really well again because everybody's contributing, doing their part, and that's, that's the great way to do ministry. Go and do likewise. Ways to do that, you know what? Join in. You know, you'll have opportunities. Just here's something you can do this week. If you have the time, go do it. Be a regular team member. There are, there are teams to join. I'll let you hear about a few in just a minute. Step up to be a leader. You know, one of the things we really need in our compassion ministry is people who will be leaders for the teams. Give to those special projects. Give to the church generally because, you know, when we don't pick and choose what we give to, but we give to the whole ministry, then the leaders of the church are able to say, okay, now we need more money over here today. We can put some money toward that tomorrow. But give in that way. 
but make sure that, that you're reaching out uh, to, to do that. Well, we're actually going to stop right here and say, okay, well, we got the picture again. This is what compassion ministry is all about. But as we're stopping, let's hear from, from some in our own congregation. Keith, would you just come on up right now on this Compassion Ministry Sunday? And I just want you to meet Keith and know him. And I want you to, uh, to be able to hear a little bit about what's going on in Compassion Ministry and, uh, and what the opportunities might be. Before we close, I'm going to start by saying Keith stepped up a few years ago and said, this is something God has called me to. I'm willing to put in the time. He's had an extremely busy and often very difficult uh, schedule with his work, but he's hung in there, and we wouldn't have our Compassion Ministry today if Keith hadn't been doing this. So, Keith, a quick little overview of uh, Compassion Ministry at Northwest Hills. About seven, eight years ago, we did a survey among the congregation. About 400 people responded, and it was really clear about Compassion Ministry. It was really clear that people in the church have a heart for children, they have a heart to meet the needs of the community, and that there's a lot of people within our church that are doing many different things, but it really wasn't constructed or organized within the church to do so. And so what came from that uh, survey was a desire to put uh, a little bit more uh, organization to uh, look at some very specific compassion ministries that people could get involved in and uh, to put some uh, identity to that to get people connected. And, and from that survey, uh, we, we found out uh, something that was really interesting. There were three really key uh, Christian organizations outside of the church that we as a church have been involved in, whether we've been uh, founders, uh, Ken and Mary Hines, founders of Friends of the Family, uh, board members, some of the original board members for Options Pregnancy Resource Center, uh, Love Inc., some of the original board members there. And so as a church, what we decided to do and through Andy and the elders was to go ahead and identify these as our partner ministry, uh, ministry partners, uh, where we would encourage people within the church to uh, be aware of the ministry that they're doing. They're all doing very three unique different types of ministries, but it's very crucial and very critical to our, to our life as a community. And, and those three ministries are on the board behind me, or on the screen behind me. Uh, they're out in the uh, entryway, and you can learn more about them. But, but they're uh, wonderful ministries, and, and our Christian community and our church is greatly blessed by uh, they being here. So we support that like, from our general offerings that come here because we've partnered with them. We give them uh, some financial support, but also a lot of our people do interact, and so that's really great. Yeah. Now, we also have, though, uh, ministries that are just right here, homegrown, homerun. Uh, tell us a little bit. Hey, and so one of the ministries that kind of came from the survey were uh, a lot of men had stated that they wanted to be involved in something, but there wasn't something really clear for them to get involved in. And, and so from that, we uh, came up with a process or, or a ministry opportunity called Men's 127. And Doug Stewart's here, and Doug's going to tell us a little bit about that. But, but we're trying to copy the cool college where they did whatever, X2 something, what is it? 242. 242, yeah. So, so we're trying to copy that. But, but, but the, uh, James, James 127 is a great scripture. And, and James uh, says, do you want to know what true religion is? And do you want to know what uh, taking your faith and putting to action is? And it says live a life that's pure. Well, that makes sense. I think we could all agree living a life that's pure and free from sin. But then it states only one other thing. It says to serve and minister to the widows and to the poor. And those are the two things that James said to show true faith. And, and so from that is what the men's group of 127 is taking to heart. And that's kind of our purpose and our drive for, for that. And Doug's going to tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah, we uh, meet 
once a month, second Saturday of a month from about 8 to noon. Um, We do as simple of tasks as changing a light bulb to doing more complex things, construction work, um, electrical work. A couple weeks ago, one of our, a couple of our guys changed out a uh, garbage disposal. Um, we've helped out at the soup kitchen. We've helped do work with Options Pregnancy Care Center. A um, number of things like that. Yeah. And I know you've even been in my neighborhood, and so I look around my neighborhood and I would say, well, probably everybody here is fine. But uh, even in our own neighborhood, so I appreciate you guys coming out. Just really quick, just like one sentence off the top of your head, because I didn't prepare for this, but... What's the, what's the rewarding part of this ministry for you and the guys that go out there? Um, uh, it's multiple. Um, you get to know men. You get to meet practical needs in the community, things that you didn't know existed before you went to this person's house or this organization that needs your help. So yeah. Great. Magnifying God, pointing people to Jesus. Way to go. Thanks, Ed. Going to be in the entry area and go talk with them. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, men that I'm looking at that are able-bodied, and we could do more ministry. We have anywhere from 10 to 15 show up once a month, and there's a time of fellowship. There's a time where you get to know each other. There's a time of prayer, and you go out and serve. And and we have guys that are clueless to guys who've been carpenters, and we pair up. We go on out. It's a wonderful time, and we can do more, and, and there's a lot to be done. All right. So I think our next uh, group is uh, Supply Drive. Is that correct? Yep. So, our, so Dave Stubbs is here, and uh, the church is involved in a school supply drive and also in some other supply drives, and Dave's going to tell us about that. Well, I know you all are familiar with me because you saw me a couple of months ago talking about the school supply drive, uh, which we completed in August, and a couple of the pictures uh, The one on the right has a teacher picking up supplies and a bob carrying them for her. A bob's a beast of burden. We have junior and senior high school students that volunteer to help the teachers carry their supplies around in the Linus Pauling cafeteria. And the other picture is picking up some supplies in Illinois to bring here. And yes, they all did go in the van. Uh, the, the fun part of the school supply drive is we had over 400 teachers that attended this event, and we've supplied about $117,000 worth of supplies to the teachers to help them get through this school year. And the thank you notes that uh, we get from them are just phenomenal. Okay, so you got something more beside the school, though. What else? Well, we have a personal care supplies roundup which you've probably also heard about. We normally do that in the spring. Uh, Once upon a time, it was called the hygiene supplies, and it had one of those names that didn't sound too good. It's everything you can think of uh, for personal hygiene, from the simple stuff like toothpaste and soap and hairbrushes to other things like toilet paper and mops and some other supplies that you might be familiar with. Um, we, we have found that there are a number of people in our community that can't afford to get those kinds of things. Food stamps, they can get food. You can't get this stuff on food stamps. And the big thing is there are a lot of students that won't go to school if they don't feel clean. So we try to provide some supplies for those students so that they can uh, 
participate actively in their education. Okay. When you're talking about elementary school kids, even who yes. don't go to school yeah. or middle school. Okay. Okay. And, and yes, I'm going to try to sneak in my things. other things. Go for it. <laughs> uh, working with Love in the Name of Christ, there are many things that Northwest Hills participates in, and you probably don't hear about most of them. Uh, we we have a linen closet. You'll hear something in a minute about that. We have the women's cold weather shelter, which runs from the middle of November to into March, and somebody will tell you a little bit more about that, and that's coming up, so we're uh, kind of emphasizing the need for help in that one. But there's some other things, too. There's a dental van that uh, comes to our uh, property here that Love, Inc. provides dental services to people in the community in need. Uh, we have a bicycle ministry that uh, one of our couples here uh, coordinates all the delivery of bicycles. We get old bicycles. There are a number of volunteers that work on fixing them up, and we can provide transportation to people in the community who don't have any other means of transportation. Um, there's a medical supply closet for all kinds of medical equipment from the kinds of things you think about, walkers and uh, wheelchairs, but, you know, toilet boosters for people who have surgery and can't get onto a toilet, all kinds of variety of things. Uh, there's even a kitchen closet, and you can probably figure out what that is. Uh, we all need help to make those ministries go, so we're looking for volunteers. And if you really can't do that right now, we obviously need money to make those go so that the volunteers have something to deliver. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dave. Oh, by the way, <laughs> there's a little Oregon sunshine out there. Don't let that deter you. I know you haven't seen it for a few months, but come out to our tables. and uh, For the wet kind of sunshine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So. The... the uh, and just following up what Dave said, um, why we're doing this is not to impress everyone with all the ministries that we're doing. Why we're doing this is to give a variety of the things you can get involved in. And, and we're going to talk about a few others, but there's clearly a spectrum of something that fits your gifts, that fits your desires, that fits your heart. And, and so I don't think people can sit here and have an excuse not to be involved in compassion ministry. But Dave and Lori and a few others will be out at a table describing some of those ministries, and most of those are through Love, Inc. So one of our ministries here is to right next door. So right. Tell us right. about that one. So, so who's our neighbor? And, and not to go through Andy's sermon. But, but we have uh, a school right next to us. And so we approached them and met with the principal, and she's not there now. She's at another school. And we asked, what can we as a church do to be a good neighbor to you, to, to minister to you? And first thing she said was, I'm not the church type, and I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. And, and so we boiled some things down to, uh, we just want to help you. We just want to serve. We want to minister to you and to the students and to the teachers and the uh, administration there. So we came up with two programs and, and, and started out slowly. She wasn't quite sure what we should be doing. But, but since that relationship started about eight years ago, uh, we've painted almost every single classroom. We've painted a lot of the exterior. We've pressured washed the outside of the school. We wash the windows almost every year. We take care of the cement. Uh, we've done a lot of activities. And, and most recently what they have appreciated, whenever the flu season hits, 
we go with a group of 20 or 30 or more people and go through every single classroom and we wipe everything down and it's been a blessing to them and they recognize that we're just not an organization that's self-serving, self-centered and do nothing beyond these walls. We're not a social club. We're willing to get out and serve and they've been very appreciative of that. And another ministry that's come from that, and we call that our Good Neighbor or our Hoover Program, if you kind of want to know the name for that. So when you see that advertised and can sign up for that, that's kind of a gist of what you'll be doing. We're going over there hands-on. But what also came from it was she shared uh, within Hoover, and it kind of surprised me, we live in an affluent area. This is an affluent part of town. And she expressed to us that they had students there who came from broken homes, who came from uh, poor role models within the home, and in a school district that she had been in previously that a mentoring program where college students would come on in and spend one day a week with a student and just be their buddy, just be their friend. So we call it our mentoring program, our friend program. And um, I can see some college students here. I know school hasn't quite started, but we've had anywhere from 15 to 30 students a year involved with Hoover, Lincoln, and uh, Franklin Elementary Schools. And it's a simple, and, and I know some people say, well, I'm not a teacher, I'm not good with kids. It makes no difference. I, I truly believe God will tell the uh, school counselor who to pair up with who. And, and everyone that I've talked with, college students I've talked with, they seem to always click with the right student to work with. And it's amazing the impact that one hour, one day a week will have with a student and, and how it can turn around a student when they feel that someone as they look up to college students. They, they look up to someone who is older than them, but not their parent, who's willing to take the time and to interact and be part of their lives. It's an amazing opportunity. So just a couple others really quick here uh, for our ministry. And uh, so I'll just go ahead and ask Tanya to come up. And as she's doing that, Keith, just, just really quickly, the graffiti story at Hoover. Yeah, because it, it, it makes a difference here. So. It, it does. And this is something that's great for people to know. Our relationship with Hoover has grown to such a point that about three years ago, um, got a phone call. I almost never leave my phone on. As we're walking out of church, it was uh, just after the second service, the phone rings. It's the school administrator with Hoover saying, Keith, I'm so glad I got you. I didn't know who else to call. Someone last night put graffiti all over the school, and there's a bunch of profanity. And Monday morning when the young kids come to school, there's no one that's going to be able to block that out. We called the district. They can't get to it till Monday. Is there any way anyone here in your church could go and take care of it? Well, I just happened to be next to Dave Stubbs. He was next to someone else. We talked with a few people, got some paint remo- removal materials, got a pressure washer, took care of the whole deal. The purpose, again, of that story is not to pat ourselves on the back. The purpose of the story is to show we're a compassion ministry. We're someone who is the first person that they thought of to interact, not with that church that they were afraid that was going to proselytize and turn all those little kids into their little Christian robots, but, <laughs> but someone who saw, hey, they have a heart and they want to do what's right, and these are really good people and they care about us. And, and so it's wonderful to see over time what those relationships do. All right. Tanya, come on up. So the Linen Closet Ministry, which happens right from this campus. Most people don't even know we do this. Uh, this is also tied in with Love, Inc. And uh, just real quick, tell what happens in that ministry. So um, linens are donated to Love, Inc., uh, blankets, sheets, pillows, um, towels. They're donated to the Love, Inc. office, or there's also a box here that they can be turned into if you have some. We store them down in the Brown House, down at the west end of campus. I have two wonderful ladies right now helping me organize the closet and um, We've overflowed that, which is a blessing because winter's coming, and we get many, many calls for blankets. Um, 
during the winter months. And some of the neighbors that we serve, I was looking through my list, and we serve many women who have just come out of abusive situations. They have nothing. They've had to leave homes um, with their children, and they have nothing. And so uh, some of them were providing pallets, you know, thick comforters. They had to sleep on the floor until they didn't have mattresses delivered. Um, you know, we deliver towels if, if you're, um, you know, in a, fa- a family, a, a single mom with two or three kids, and you have one towel to share. You know, that gets, it's, it's awful. So they feel really, really blessed, and it gives us an opportunity to go in there and find out uh, what are some of their other spiritual needs, emotional needs, and we can go in and pray with them and just extend God's love and compassion to them yeah. during those times. Great. Thanks for doing that sure. behind-the-scenes ministry. Last one. Jen, come on up. Got to get you in here. Uh, Dave mentioned the uh, women's cold weather shelter, and that's something that uh, our church has, has uh, stepped up to be a part of. And so, Jen, just explain that one real fast for us. Hi. Um, the women's shelter is also sponsored by Love, Inc., and um, it's a place where women from Corvallis and Benton County can go for a place to stay. It's open seven nights a week. And um, it provides a place for the women to stay from mid-November all the way till March. So it's when it's cold, then they can stay there. Um, And we here at Northwest Hills take on a week during the year to um, staff it. And so you can volunteer to be a part of that to help. um, And as Keith said last service, we um, break it up into shifts so you don't have to stay from when it starts to be open until the end. Lori Stubbs works really hard to maintain a schedule so that you can um, come and take a partial shift there. There's also opportunities to help organize for our volunteers. And um, my daughter and I have been a part of that for the last couple of years, and I will tell you that it's a great opportunity to get involved with. You um, can go and pray with the women, and they come out um, as they're getting there and you have an opportunity to just bring the love of Jesus to them as well, just like Keith was saying for Hoover, and we've just really felt blessed to be able to be a part of that. Thanks, Jen. So, and, and one thing, just thanks, Jen. Men can do this. Uh, I know a lot of. I'm looking at a couple guys out here. I know I've done it. I've done it. Um, it's okay to do. It's a good thing to do, and it's required that both a male and a female serve during the shift. So a lot of people before thought this was only a female volunteer opportunity, but both uh, men and women can do so. So a lot of things going on here, many things that happen out of other ministries that are compassion ministry also. The point is, make compassion who you are, because as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's who you should be, a compassionate person. When that happens, God is magnified, people come to know Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As they're getting set, Keith, just tell uh, tell the story about... Uh, your firewood real quick, your yeah, firewood I, delivery. I, I, Come on, I, I, glad to. You. The, what is compassion ministry? What does it mean to you? What, what type of impact does it have? And, and I'm going to be the first to say I believe that you're going to receive a whole lot more than what you give. And in many different ways, uh, you will truly begin to look at the world around you through Christ's eyes. And you'll truly begin to have Christ's heart. And I think that is so clearly represented by reaching out to others and serving others. And I just have a quick story, and I'll make this fast. I have a pet peeve, and the pet peeve is simply whenever you do good for someone, i.e., loan someone a chainsaw who desperately needs it, knowing the chain's not sharpened, and you try to do good for someone, and that person comes back later 
and says, that was a crummy chainsaw. That chain wasn't sharpened. And, and they seem to uh, be ungrateful for when you try to do something good for them. For some reason, that has always griped me uh, when, when you interact with people and, and there's this sense of ungratefulness. Well, a couple years ago, and this is kind of way sometimes how God works, um, it was a fall. We were cutting firewood, split it up, and I was going to deliver it. It was on a Saturday. It happened to be the same Saturday that there was a beaver game that I wanted to go to, and I also had tickets. And uh, knowing I was going to be a little late, hustled to a person's home, went to deliver this firewood, and showed on up, expecting them to help unload it, which didn't happen, expecting some type of interaction that was different from what occurred. The interaction was, what length did you cut it? Well, man, we cut it about 16 inches. Well, better be because any longer won't fit in my fireplace or my uh, wood stove. So I, I can accept that. Is the wood season? Yes, ma'am, it looks like it's been down for a couple of years. Well, better be because if it's not, and, and I understood that. And uh, as we unloaded, uh, no interaction at all. As we went to go, I offered to pray with her. She said, simply no, I don't want your prayers. And then she turned around and said, will you please tell the people responsible for bringing the firewood that they would bring me more? And I need a cover. I need you to put something over the firewood. No, thank you. Nothing. That just happened to hit one of those sore spots that I personally have that I just don't deal with very well. If it had been a guy, I would have said something or done something differently. But, but it being a female, I was just kind of like, ugh. Mm -hmm. So about a week or so later, I'm sharing this with a friend of mine. And I'm not even done telling the story. And he just begins to laugh. I'm looking at him saying, Come on, give me a break here. Don't, don't you empathize with me. Don't you sympathize with where I'm at. He says, no. Don't you understand that you just experienced the exact same thing that Christ goes through? Every time we deny him, every time we sin, every time we turn our backs on him, that's the exact same thing Christ does. And it hit me right then and there. That's one of the reasons for compassion ministry. We're going to go closer to God. We're going to see God through his eyes. We're going to have God's heart. And I encourage everyone to take an opportunity to be involved in it. And there's, as you've heard this morning, there's plenty to see and there's plenty to uh, hear about and there's plenty to whet your interest. So I know everyone's going to race off for lunch, but just take a few minutes and stop by the different booths and tables and see what ministries are available. Thanks.